This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5pm in the city. What a session to kick off 2019. We are all over the place. A new year, but the same old problems. The FTSE 100 closing higher on the day by about a tenth of 1%. The range on the S&P 500 in today's session. Just wow. Negative by more than 1% at the lows, almost 1.6%. Then positive 2 tenths of 1%, now negative four tenths of 1%. A lot of this off the back of a big move higher in crude through the halfway point of the trading session in the United States. We were up around about 5% on Brent and WTI. A little less than that now at 3.6% on Brent. WTI crude positive by 3.8%. A bid came into Treasuries to start the day, a risk aversion bid. Yields lower by two basis points still, but buns for me is where the price action really is. German 10-year government bond yields down by seven or eight basis points to 0.165% off the back of some ugly reads on manufacturing on the continent and some pretty ugly reads in China over the last couple of weeks as well. I want to bring in some guests to kick off a brand new year, some of our finest. Alistair McKay, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth, and Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. Marcus, what is going on in this market? Well, it's a bit of uh, early days, early doors volatility. I wouldn't read too much into everything. It shows you by the uh, whipsaw that... Uh, uh, things are all up in the air. I would say it's quite odd that stocks have managed to bounce back, but it, and I note the bonds haven't lost any of their uh, yield move. Interesting, downwards. isn't it? Yeah, so there you go. Different think, strokes, different folks. What do you think is going on, Al? Uh, Happy New Year, Jonathan. Uh, to you too. Look, we're um, we're really early doors in the year here. So it's a bank holiday here in Switzerland, um, and... Uh, you know, we've got a fair amount of money sitting on the sidelines, and I don't think there was any uh, intention I had at the beginning of the day to uh, to start getting too proactive today. And I think most people in the city in London and New York probably think along similar lines. Let's face it, there's not exactly much more clarity today than there was at the tail end of last year. Um, and it might well be a new year, but most of the problems or issues that we had hanging over us last year are still still very much here. One constant. And you point out the issues from last year spilling into this year. One constant over the last 12 months has most certainly been China, Marcus. A sub-50 read on another PMI out of the world's second largest economy. The trend lower in Chinese economic data is real. It's not imagined. And I'm trying to get my hands around when we're going to see a real response from the Chinese authorities. Uh, well, I think the reason why you see uh, particularly the Hang Seng, but uh, also the CSI 300 down, quite a bit uh, today was, uh, bear in mind, Japan was closed, and so perhaps it took a bit more of the brunt than it might otherwise have done, the Hang Seng, that is. But, um, you know, this is an ongoing problem, and it isn't going to get better. And also, I read into that that there are less hopes than one might have uh, imagined for successor trade talks with the US. So uh, there was a bit of other talk going on about South China Sea and warships, but, I mean... Ignoring that for the moment, the China uh, inability to, on the middle income trap, or even to call it the classic emerging market situation, that they are trying to become rich and sustainable, and they've pulled on all various credit levers to an extent. It, it does look a bit samey at the moment. 
uh, you know, they do have a command and control economy. They, in theory, can pull more levers, but at the moment, it doesn't look like they're, they're it looks like they're out of ideas. It's obviously not the perfect parallel, Marcus, but this has got a feel of early 2016. Uh, another big growth scare, the epicenter of it, particularly coming out of China, and the fear that it would spill into the U.S. economy in a material way. Do you see the parallels, Marcus? Yeah, well, I think the the, the best, probably the cheapest and nastiest and I use the pun crudest proxy to look at is oil um, because that probably tells you as much what's going on in oil as what's going on in China and I think the two are quite closely linked at the moment uh, and the reason why I think oil has dropped so sharply in prices not solely of course but a decent chunk of it is down to the weakness in the uh, Chinese economy and, and ongoing fears of, of the lack of demand that the China will therefore will have for crude. Yeah. Therefore, I look at that quite, uh, you know, just as a, a rough and dirty sort of uh, guide as to as to how people are looking as far as uh, economic prospects for the start of 2019. And they don't look great. And that's why I think uh, there's been such a rush into bonds, because uh, perhaps people have taken that trade off. Back end of last year, you needed something to get some profit on in 2018. So if you've had a nice trade in, in sort of holding, you know, top quality government bonds, you probably took that off, perhaps a little bit too early, it would seem. So maybe some people rush back into into uh, get some insurance in, in place. But it doesn't leave us in a great state for uh, the start of 2019. But who knows what's going to happen? What do you think, Al? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you're the Chinese, you're going to hold your powder dry for the time being because there's going to be plenty of twists and turns that are going to materialize in the trade discussions with the U.S. We don't know what Trump's going to do from day to day, let alone, um, you know, another 60 plus, 70 plus days down the road. Um, and if you need to uh, to start propping up the economy and, and, and helping out the uh, the industrial parts, uh, you, you want to hold fire for as long as you can. And I think um, it would be unlikely to see them doing too much too soon here. I would say, though, isn't this an incentive to get both sides together if both sides are going through a little bit more pain, relatively speaking, to where we were last year, Marcus? Is there an argument to make there? Well, I think this just plays into Donald Trump's playbook. I mean, he, he's loving it, I'd imagine. Um, you know, this is exactly... Uh, he could not have mapped this out better for him. It, it, it's fallen into his hands beautifully. Uh, the, the Chinese stock market being so weak and, and the various other different pressures on the currency and related problems, he has... China in this context where he wants them and we will see whether the Chinese intransigence does move because really they they need this now a bit more than they certainly did. Um, they yeah. always famous for playing the long game but I think their short game needs to up their up its uh, up its game. Well let's talk about the short game Marcus because I can certainly see the incentive for the Chinese to come to the table and strike a deal. What I'm struggling to see so far is the uh, the concessions they'd be willing to make. Any idea? Well, I think this is why people are getting a little bit more pessimistic about not just what the uh, whether a deal of any shape, form, or size size comes out. I know Trump has talked it up quite uh, quite well, as he well ought to, and and no doubt uh, will do, continue to do so. But it, it's the sustainability of anything. It doesn't matter. It all looks great on paper. If it falls apart within a, an hour, a day, a week, then it comes to naught. And I think that's what people want to see. There's a three month you know sort of window for this. Where over halfway through that, so we do need something to come into play before uh, tariffs get slapped back on again, and they are very sizable ones as well. So, uh, But it's something that's going to have to make sense for both sides and be sustainable, and that's where people think, really, you know, there's no evidence or little evidence thus far to suggest that will really be the case. Are you bullish a trade deal, Al? 
Uh, I think something will materialise before day's end. But, you know, as is always the case with negotiations, um, it's going to get worse and uh, markets will become more uh, um, fearful um, as we get closer to deadlines. So I think uh, volatility will increase, um, fear will increase uh, before we actually get uh, a bit more progress actually materialising with these discussions. Fascinating discussion, guys, on what could be a fascinating year 2019, shaping up to be interesting already. Marcus Ashworth's going to stick with us, Bloomberg opinion columnist, alongside Alice McKay, Director of Investment Management at Firm Wealth. A conversation on a very volatile global market. Next up on a programme, the outlook for monetary policy, the Federal Reserve in the firing line from investors all around the world. Will we finally see them pause on interest rate hikes? The overwhelming consensus appears to be that we may just see that through this year. It's interesting, though, that the ECB has appears to get a free pass as they continue to remove accommodation amidst a real slowdown on the continent. It's that conversation next right here on the cable. In the market today, a really interesting session. Once again, the FTSE positive by a tenth of 1%. But the story for me is in the bond market. German bond yields move lower by eight basis points to 0.165% on German 10-year paper. We'll take it to Europe next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Guy Johnson, not with me today. He'll be back with us tomorrow. I hope that he may not be with me again tomorrow. I understand he's working a very, very early shift in London, which means uh, he can't stay through to the end of the day, apparently. Happy New Year to you, Guy. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine he might be listening. Really interesting session, guys. Uh, With me today, Marcus Ashworth of Bloomberg and Fern Wealths, Alistair McCaig. Marcus, what did you make of that move in buns? Um, Well, it was the classic head fake start of the new year. I mean, I think pretty much everyone had uh, the same rationale that I had, which is, and I'm sure people had the trade on, which is that there's a lot of supply coming down the pipe. Uh, I'm writing something about it at the moment, actually. Um, Planned for January, February. It's the big issuance and much longer dated issuance coming from all the big countries in Europe. And therefore, by definition, the ECB has stopped its QE program. Dolt, you know, surely yields go higher. Yeah, well, no. <laughs> uh, au contraire. And uh, it's caught a lot of people out. And therefore, it's a classic, um, you know, it's people getting stopped out and a, and a squeeze. As I, as I mentioned earlier, I reckon a bunch of people had taken perhaps too much off and banked some profits uh, back in the last year, they didn't need it. The cover through uh, year end, year end's over. Everyone, the logical trade is, is for yields to go up, and it, that's exactly what it hasn't done. So um, everyone's been um, caught by surprise. The ECB seems to have had a free pass from market participants who have been very critical of the Federal Reserve. Mohamed Alarian of Allianz pointing that out over the last week, and I actually think it's quite fascinating. What are your thoughts on that, uh, Al? 
Yeah, I've I've read in a couple of places that uh, that the you know people are thinking that there's a chance in 2019 tail end or certainly second half we might see the ECB act. I, I find that difficult to believe um, with just the, the the data that's been um, on offer so far um, in in the last quarter six months. Call it what you want, really. Um, I just don't see the landscape uh, allowing them to to do that. There are too many. Um, fairly decent sized uh, obstacles that need to be cleared first yes quantitative easing has come to an end but um the, there's still plenty of unwinding of everything that needs to 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 come to fruition um and i just don't see them having the data to give them the excuse to do that as much as you want to sort of resupply your ammunition for for years or the future i just can't see them being able to get away with it. Was the data there for them to remove accommodation in the first place, Marcus? Ha! No. This is completely uh, a political construct uh, which has been pushed very hard and was was finally done in June last year when the economies were looking much sounder than they are now. As I was saying, the last six months has been, um, and, and it's accelerated to the downside, um, the economic data's got worse. You, know, this, you would not want to be ending QE at this point uh, if it hadn't, the fact you had already promised it, and there's such a uh, strong pressure, and, and and basically what Draghi's come up with this compromise, which is delaying uh, a future rate hike. Um, and actual fact, I think they should have done another around, uh, and and perhaps learn from the Fed. The Fed's also playing this game of the quantitative tightening and hiking rates, but yeah, I think I think the European Central Bank has kept uh, rates too negative for too long, and perhaps it should have bought. A compromise by uh, uh, in keeping its QE going or ticking over in a, in, in a better way. But then again, having said that, you know, bunt yields at seventeen basis points. Why do they need QE? So you know, at the moment it's it's, it's and, and they are getting away with it. It's just you know, really, the European economy can it sustain uh, on its own uh, and without QE? And the, the answer doesn't look like it can. Alice McCake and Marcus Ashworth sticking with me on this programme as we kick off things for 2019 with a look at the central bank policies that we may or may not get through the year. Certainly for the ECB, the doubts are real that the ECB could deliver a rate hike before Mario Draghi leaves. The overwhelming consensus from the people I speak to is that is not going to happen. Next up on the programme, the Federal Reserve still very much in the firing line from market participants and uh, the President of the United States alike. Chairman Powell, this time last year, he was meant to be a refreshing change to communication at the Fed. Twelve months later, I think we've worked out that a lot of people in this market don't like it. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. From New York City for the City of London, I'm Jonathan Farrow. Guy Johnson is away today. A happy new year to our audience across the capital. With me to discuss global markets and a whole lot more is Marcus Ashworth of Bloomberg and Alistair McCake of Fern Wealth. Now, let's begin with you, sir. The Federal Reserve very much in the firing line still. There is a growing consensus, though, that this year morphs into a bit of a pause for the Federal Reserve. Does that argument resonate with you? Yes, I think so. I think we, you know, as, as things stand at the moment, we think probably two hikes, two, or I think probably two hikes to, to come in the, in the year ahead, probably March and June time. Um, 
And I don't think there's certainly much uh, appetite for, for a huge amount more. Uh, I think there's a, a, a suspicion, certainly on market observers, that the, the rest of the global issues uh, that global economies have are going to slowly but surely start to impact on the U.S. Um, and, um, and there's certainly a fair amount of internal pressure in the U.S. from uh, uh, from POTUS. Uh, so, uh, you know, I guess um, I don't think there's a as things currently stand, that looks like the way of it. We'll be keenly watching to see what changes in, uh, you know, wording we we, we get uh, um, from Jerome Powell in the in the weeks and months ahead. Marcus, well, we'll wait on Friday for whether he uses the two key words, which is uh, patient, uh, and modest, or modest and moderate. Something I said, beige sounding. Um, but uh, I just want to pick up on what I was saying here because, you know, a, a March uh, rate hike is now only a 5% possibility, according to our work function on Bloomberg, the weighted interest rate uh, way of evaluating what prices are telling is as far as expectations. And more importantly, there are no rate hikes priced in for the whole of 2019 and more chances of a rate cut in 2020. So the market and yields down yeah. as low as they are, are 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 effectively saying there will be no rate hikes at all. Uh, you know, in the next year, and then the next move might likely be downwards. So uh, I think that's overshot, and I think that though I don't expect one in March, I do probably expect one in June. Or well, that might be it. Who knows? It's you know, any more than six months out is 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 for the birds anyway, prediction terms. So. Um, I, I just think that the economic data in the States is still very strong. If you look at the, the four GDP expectations quarter on quarter for the next year, they're all in strong twos, should we say, as a rounded error, which is which is great, uh, much better than it is in Europe or anywhere else. Um, and then, you, you know, can the Fed continue to let um, uh, the economy rip up, rip away without hiking rates? And and. The interesting thing is you look at what's driving yields down in the States and you look at forward uh, inflation expectations and they've dropped sharply, you know, well, 40, 50 basis points, which is fun enough as much as, as, as bond yields have dropped. Looking at GDP forecasts for this year, Raoul, it's certainly not terrible for the United States at all. It's 2.6% if you look at the consensus view on the street right now. I guess it's the rate of change that a lot of people are uncomfortable with. We're going from above trend back down towards trend. Yeah, I, I think... Look, when it comes to, to the markets and the way that we, we gauge things, we're considerably more fickle, uh, traders, investors, et cetera. Um, and and we, um, we're, we're more, more prone to, uh, to swings, uh, let's go with. Whereas when it comes to the likes of Jerome Powell, you would hope, certainly, that the Fed chair would be um, conscious of, of where, what the history books will write about him um, and making the correct decisions for what he deems to be the, the right, right thing to do. And we've already seen a pretty decent turnaround in, in, in mentality to, to go to no hikes this year seems that's an aggressive U-turn. Um, and it's not, uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the course of action that, uh, that the head of the, the, the Fed uh, will, will take. So, uh, yeah, one, two, I, I still think there are, are, are increases uh, to, to, to come. Um, I don't doubt that uh, Trump will put increasing pressure to minimize that or, or, or in fact, um, uh, you know, negate it completely. But I'm not sure that the Jerome Powell is necessarily going to make decisions for, you know, short-term popularity reasons as opposed to what he deems to be the, the, the correct long-term economic decisions. Well, he's certainly not doing that. And it is interesting that 12 months ago, Marcus, so many people were so hopeful that we'd have this regime shift at the Fed just in terms of communication. 
Are we finding that this market is struggling to stomach the message that is coming from Chairman Powell? Well, look, the reason why Trump selected uh, Powell over Yellen, because he didn't want uh, a theoretical based PhD, you know, doctorate economic theorist uh, in charge. He wanted a practical, more businessman style, business person style uh, leadership. And that's what Powell so far has given. He made one mistake in early October, which he corrected fairly, fairly quickly, which is to say that we were nowhere near the neutral rate. And then he realized that the nightmare he caused for uh well both initially bonds and then equities fell off off the back of it um but so that's that's all well and good i mean yellow made similar sort of um misquotes or whatever you want to call it uh at the start of her uh tenure and she clearly picked up her game um so ironically you you could have said you know m- maybe yellen would have been more dovish than powell but i just don't think that's true i think and the markets realize that powell's done exactly what uh his predecessor would have done the question is what happens now is this a, a more practical uh, looking guy who'll look at not just the theory but you know where's the r star neutral rate taylor rule or all the rest of the stuff but you know really where we are and try and feel the economy a bit more but there's no reason yet for powell to take his foot off the gas the economic data is still so strong i'll probably see that with payrolls again on friday it's just that everyone seems to be front-running everyone and thinking, oh, my Lord, that they're not going to do anything here, that yeah. the economy is... And but, I, I, there's no real evidence yet for per- him. Perception markets that. can become reality if financial conditions tighten enough. Yeah, but I take exactly what I was saying, is, is, is that you know until the market's overshot, I think, to, to say there's no rate hikes this year is, is too much. I think there's going to be probably one, maybe two, and that's what he clearly thinks, and I, I, yeah. think that's, I agree with him. Gents, great to catch up with you. Happy New Year to you both. Bloomberg's... Marcus Ashworth and Fern Wealths. Alison McKay joining us out of London and Zurich, respectively. Next upon the programme, we bring it here to New York City, where we will get you up to speed on what is happening with this government. Will it reopen? It's day 12 of a partial government shutdown. As far as I know, we will be getting payrolls Friday. We hit the ground running with the labour market report in the United States this Friday. And we hear from the Federal Reserve Chairman, Jay Powell. We'll talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. Guy Johnson popping off early today. He started very early, so I'm going to fly solo for the next 30 minutes. In the equity market, we close positive on the FTSE 100. We're all over the place on the S&P 500. Crude catching a massive bid, and we filled the gap briefly on the S&P 500. Losses of more than 1% at the lows. Gains of around about four-tenths of 1% at the highs and softer by about three-tenths of 1% in the here and now. That's the equity market. In the bond market, big bid coming into German bonds. Wow. Yields lower by eight basis points at the close in Germany to 0.165% on German 10-year paper. In the United States, even though the equity market turned around, the bid stayed in in treasuries. Yields lower by a couple of basis points to 2.66% on a US 10-year. With a look ahead to the rest of 2019, Michael McKee dropping by our international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg and Bloomberg's Cameron Christ, our macro strategist, joins us as well here in New York City. Happy New Year to you both. Yeah, Happy New Year happy to you. Happy New Year. And let's hope this is not the last day we could say that. Yes. Um, I imagine it feels not so happy for the balls that came back 
2019 Cameron and expected things to pick up where they left off at the very end of the year. Yeah, although it's not as bad as it could be. True. Right. I mean, we were down about 40 points on the S&P um, at one point today, or the futures at least, which is you know, one and three quarter percent or something yeah. like that. So uh, anywhere close to flat uh, for a close today, I think would be taken as uh Something of a victory. <laughs> to be clear, it's been difficult to distinguish between signal and noise over the last couple of months. But there's some clear signal coming from the Chinese economy, Mike, and that's a slowdown. Mm-hmm. Well, we knew they were slowing down. They've been slowing down on a secular basis for a while. Uh, today, we got exactly what investors were looking for. They acted surprised and traded off. But uh, <laughs> the PMI numbers, uh, one came out, the official number came out Monday, and then the uh, private number came out today. And both go under 50, which is generally considered, even if not statistically accurately, uh, the breaking even line between expansion and contraction. And so uh, manufacturing, which is about 40% of the Chinese economy, is in contraction. A lot of that has to do with new export orders, which have fallen uh, significantly in uh, large part because of the trade war. So um, there is an effect on the Chinese economy, which doesn't surprise, as you say, anybody. Uh, what the question that raises is, uh, what do they do about it now? Yeah. They had uh, the last uh, weeks of December, their annual economic uh, policy conference, and decided to fiddle around the edges with stimulus. But uh, now there are beginning to be voices that say, you know, we can't we can't just keep going fiddling around the edges because we need to uh, prop up the economy, otherwise it'll be too late. And we can't give away too much to the United States in terms of reforming our economy because that's short-term pain for long-term gain, and we haven't got the room in the short term. Cameron? Yeah, I mean, the obvious thing to do is to uh, ease back on some of the deleveraging program that's been in place for the last year or so. But, you know, that's uh, short-term rational to give the economy a little bit of a boost, but it will merely exacerbate the problem of excess credit in the Chinese financial system. So it's, uh, you know, they've, in a sense, they've painted themselves into a corner a little bit where there's already so much credit in the economy that obviously the more that they create will just make the eventual bursting of that bubble that much more painful. Um, it. I suspect that they will loosen credit conditions a bit, perhaps not along the lines that we have become accustomed to over the last uh, over the last decade or so. But it, listen, the reality is that the trend level of growth in China is steadily going down, and yeah. you know the the twelve percent of two thousand and six and the nine percent of two thousand eleven and the six and a half percent of two thousand seventeen may well be the 5% of 2020. Well, to be clear, we're coming off a bigger and bigger base, and this is what happens when economies develop and mature, and this should be expected. Well, absolutely. One of the most interesting statistics I saw today uh, on China is a longer-term one, but apparently in 2018, China had its lowest birth rate since 2000. Yeah. Wow. And obviously, the labor force not growing, actually contracting. This is after they got rid of the one-child policy. Uh, People just aren't having children. And so uh, that just lowers your potential growth rate longer term. Yeah. I mean, potential growth is a function of labor force growth and productivity growth. And as as you suggest, as, they, as China moves up the development profile, they've already picked a lot of the low-hanging fruit in terms of productivity growth. And we're kind of at the apex of the labor force now. And as China's labor force starts to shrink, maybe in five, I can't remember what the exact year is, Mike, I don't know if you remember, but it's in yes. like five, 10 years five, 10 from years, now. Yeah. Um, a shrinking labor force 
and lower productivity growth means that trend growth is a lot lower. I and mean, look at look at what's happened in Japan. Don't forget they don't have a social safety net like we well, that, do. So and that's the problem. Levels and that's of saving the, are going to be higher. So and less that's spending. that's the big difference between China and Japan. Japan has an excellent social safety net. China does not. So that's the reason that consumer spending in China is so much lower than it quote unquote should be as a percentage of GDP is people have to essentially pre-fund. They have to self-insure for yeah. medical. They have to pre-fund their retirement um, and all sorts of stuff. And yet this is still a low-income country, Cameron. We've had all this development and this is still a poor country. Well, I wouldn't. I don't know if they're poor. Uh, middle income, I think. And, you know, and obviously it's not normally distributed. There's... The you know I believe there's a I don't really very watch small it. I don't, I don't watch bus, it but yeah. I I gather there's a television show called Crazy Rich Asians <laughs> <laughs> which presumably uh, describes a cohort there is a substantial I know, middle I know class exactly what you're saying um, there is a very substantial middle class they've been they've been moving up uh, in terms of uh, average income for quite some time and moved up significantly one of the benefits of globalization that we tend to forget about but uh, it is not ongoing uh, in, in perpetuity necessarily a very interesting column to tout the competition uh, martin wolf today writing in the financial times notes that it has been an article of faith that china will continue to grow that china will eventually surpass the united states and become the biggest economy in the world and he said that's just based on looking backwards it doesn't have to happen it could go pear-shaped it could go wrong yeah it's not and we inevitable. shouldn't necessarily assume that yeah that it's inevitable and i think um, martin and others different way of thinking about pointing that. out that at this stage of the development process countries on an income basis have been a whole lot richer cameron than, than china is right now oh for sure for sure um but you know as uh, they were coming from a low base with Agreed. such such a huge population listen it's very difficult to create the amount of wealth required to enrich in 1.4 billion people. Um, but if you want to look into your crystal ball, in 25 years, India will be much bigger than China because they have a comparable population and much, much, much more favorable demographics. Big question then for Xi Jinping. Does he look for a trade deal as a short-term fix to some of the struggles? I think so, but it's... Listen, I think both Xi and Trump have more reason to strike a deal now than maybe they did six months ago. I mean, the problem for Trump, obviously, is if you hang your hat on the stock market as a, as a barometer of success and the stock market, you know, goes down like Fulham's going to this year. Um, Ooh, it, didn't, uh, it, it took, jab it took in there. 10 minutes of the show to uh, get dig, this dig in into <laughs> West London. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Obviously, the stock market price action has been terrible. All of a sudden, you know, that beacon of success becomes a, uh, a ringing klaxon of failure. And that was, I think, was always a prerequisite yeah. for a deal is, is that the market had to tell Trump, you've gone too far. West, I think Ham, it has done. West Ham's finest feeling a little bit confident that they can, oh, they beat Fulham over they, the bricks, they huh? can have a little dig at Fulham. I like that. Big game coming up tomorrow. Manchester City, Liverpool, 3 p.m. I thought you meant today's West Ham Brighton match. No, no, although I might watch that too. <laughs> Guys, you're going to stick with me. Next up, we'll talk the government shut down. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Flying solo today, I'm Jonathan Farrow. Guy Johnson taking just a couple of hours off. Hopefully he'll be back with us later on in the week. Still with me, keeping me company here in New York City, is Michael McKee, International Economics and Policy Correspondent for Bloomberg, and Bloomberg's Cameron Kreiss, our macro strategist. So it's partial shutdown day 12 for the U.S. government in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. Mike, what's going to reopen things? <laughs> There's a question. Uh, part of the problem is we don't know what the end game is because we didn't know what the beginning game was other than the president seems to have been pushed into shutting down the government by uh, press people on the far right who told him that he was gutless and used other language uh, in their columns. Uh, hang on. He said he, he embraced uh, two weeks ago. He embraced it. He said, yeah, it's all down to me. I, yeah. I, I, the shutdown's me. And then and a then, week later, and, it was but, Democrats' but fault. Then he told members of Congress that he would go ahead and sign the bill that the Senate passed, which basically said um, we continue funding at the at, at the rate we're at and kick this down the road. And uh, then got pushed into saying no, called the House leadership in and got them to pass a bill that uh, Democrats won't accept. So, uh, well, even Republicans in the Senate wouldn't accept it. They wouldn't vote on it in the, in the Senate. They didn't bring it to a vote. So right now, what is it that he will say yes to? Uh, you know, and what is it that Nancy Pelosi will say yes to? It doesn't seem to be uh, any kind of incentive for her at the moment to say yes to anything. So it seems like this goes on for a while. Some new language to get used to. Physical barrier. The U.S. needs a <laughs> physical barrier on the southern border. Um, is it just a wall or will something else do? That's a question. Well, is it, is, it's semantics. It could it, be semantics. Isn't the latest uh, architectural rendering more of a Venetian blind, a vertical, <laughs> Venetian a vertical blind, Venetian like blind than, a, than a wall <laughs> per that, se? Is that what it is? I think so, isn't it? I mean, you, you follow this stuff more than me. but uh. Well, there have been all kinds of suggestions. And then you had John Kelly in his exit interview with the Los Angeles Times saying, no, we gave up on a concrete wall a long time ago. And then we had a tweet from Trump saying, no, we never gave up on a concrete wall. So uh, nobody really knows what he wants. So nobody really knows where this could go. And it isn't clear where Senate Republicans will go in this. Are we talking about the wall or about the trade deal or <laughs> Obamacare? We're talking about a lot of things. But isn't this the bigger issue that for market participants, you're not bothered about the partial government shutdown. You're bothered about where it leads to and whether it bleeds into something bigger and more significant. Does it? I, th I think it's mostly a talking point for the pundit class, to be honest with you. Um, uh, what it does do is it it just provides another, if you will, if you will, tile in the mosaic of uncertainty, and that's really the issue Ooh, like that, that markets are confronting. That's that's beautiful. You like it's that? beautiful. You, did, you yeah, take you some time write. off and come up with that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, that's really I'm, nice. I'm pretty pleased with that. Tile in the mosaic of uncertainty. Uh, you know, because we've got the trade situation. Very um, small tiles in mosaic mosaics. Just well, I'll let ones. you. I'm just saying, there's lots. That's nice. Yes. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we've got the, the the trade stuff. Who knows how that's going to play out? You know, in fact, we're going to find out in about five weeks how the existing tariffs have had an impact on corporate America. Obviously, the stock market is saying it's catastrophic. I think there is potential for some upside surprise if earnings season is is reasonable. Um, I think you know the, the bar is now so low. Yeah, I would I would have thought that a suggestion that it hasn't really moved the needle that much would be taken positively. You've got Brexit. I, mean, I would say people on this side of the pond, 
don't understand Brexit, but I think you could probably make the same argument about the UK government. People so, in the UK and the UK government, I don't think, yeah, understand so, Brexit. Uh, a lot of tiles over in yeah, the like, British mosaic. Yeah, I think that one, the tile, the, the tray of tiles is spilled. Uh, um, but, it, you know, it's another reason to be to be unclear about, about how things are going to play out. Do you out. think fireworks displays should be politicised? Just throwing that one out there. Uh, how, how, uh, I'm taking. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll say I'll, no. Uh, generally, my answer is: Should I, anything be politicized? I'd I, say no. I, I, but it was beautiful. No you got to admit. What was, it was the, beautiful? I, I, I really did it. We're going to fill. We're going to fill Cameron in at a commercial break, <laughs> guys. You're going to stick with me. Next up, the week ahead, we hit the ground running. Happy New Year. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Live across the capital on DAV Digital Radio, this is Bloomberg Radio. Guy Johnson is off today's show. I'm Jonathan Farrow. Guy will be later, back later with us in, uh, in a week, hopefully. Coming up on this week, through the rest of this week and the back end of the week, uh, Thursday tomorrow, GM, Ford, Fiat, Chrysler and other automakers reporting US sales. The Democrats taking control of the House the beginning, the reopening of Congress, the 116th Congress, I believe, Michael McKeer. Is that right? 116? I believe so. We've had 116 of them. U.S. jobless claims coming out tomorrow too. ISM manufacturing. Then Friday, look out for this. Powell, Yellen, Bernanke, a joint interview at the AEA annual meeting. Will you be there, Mike, or will you be I will, at I will the I will be Labor there. Department? I've got my, my T-shirt, uh, my deadhead T-shirt. Nice. Uh, you know, for the re- the band's reunion. Um it's going to be it's going to be interesting to listen to it it's an it's a, a very appropriately timed appearance because it's like Joe DiMaggio and Mrs. Robinson the, the the equity markets turn their lonely eyes to Jay Powell but it's kind of an odd uh format because he's got the other two on stage with him i could see him saying we're data dependent and we're um we're we're not on a preset course which is what he's said all along maybe Outside the Fed meeting, those words carry a little more resonance with people on the, on the street. Uh, but I can't imagine him saying we're going to do anything with the balance sheet, not with the architect of the balance sheet strategy, Janet Yellen, sitting next to him on stage. It's a two-hour-long appearance, though, which is really Oh, they're good at wild. saying nothing over, over long amounts well, of time. It's well, going to be a <laughs> historical look back. I, I, I actually think that Jay Powell could do some good if he were to articulate more clearly why he thinks that the balance sheet runoff as currently constructed is no big deal. I happen to agree with him. And if you run the numbers, it's very difficult to tease out a big market impact in any asset uh, for the balance sheet runoff. But there is a narrative out there that's very popular that this is this horrible thing that's squeezing liquidity and killing the stock market, which I think is, is inaccurate. But as John, as you're fond of saying if enough people believe it then it becomes yeah. it becomes the truth yeah. yeah so i think if if i don't know do you know who's conducting the questioning or is it just sort of a chit-chat? yeah neil, neil Irwin from the new york times oh, okay good. well if hopefully he will ask mr powell to explain why he thinks that the balance sheet runoff is no big deal and hopefully he'll explain 
in more detail well, than I just the, said. The Fed, the Fed has done a number of studies on this. Simon Potter, the uh, head of the open market operations for the New York Fed, had a speech a month or so ago in which they went through every indicator they could find um, to measure the effects of the balance sheet runoff, and they could find no indication that it's causing problems in the markets. And, I mean, not to be rude, but how many of the equity muppets using this as an excuse do you think have read Mr. Potter's <laughs> I Mr. would Potter's imagine it's very few. Well, it's interesting because going into the Fed meeting, and I was going to be at the press conference, and I knew the balance sheet was a big issue, so I called around to a lot of people on Wall Street, and I said, what's the impact of this? And nobody could quantify an answer. They all were like, well, you know, we, we, we think that it could be this. If, uh, if QE was good for markets, then QT must be bad. It must be bad. Well, that's I the think thing. People re think of this engineering as, it. but this isn't QT. Uh, so they're not selling bonds. You know, there are people right. who talk about the Fed selling bonds. They don't sell anything. Right. All they do is they shrink the balance sheet by removing a zero maturity reserve from the liability side and removing a zero maturity bond from the asset side. It, it it's it, well let me ask you this let's say you can reverse engineer it let's say that qt is really bad and that that's what the markets are going with yes. okay let's begin with this question why was qe good what did qe do from my perspective the primary benefit of qt of excuse me quantitative easing was the signaling mechanism you can explain the performance of the bond market very very well without having to resort to Fed balance sheet. In fact, when I first started here at Bloomberg, I did some research to, to try to quantify this, this factor because I had this prior view that, oh, when they start running stuff up, it's going to be terrible, blah, 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 blah. So I ran all the numbers. And I couldn't find any explanatory power for uh, treasury yields from, from the size of the Fed's balance sheet or changes in the Fed's balance sheet. But what it does do, what QE did do is it said, hey, we got your back. We're easing. We're not going to tighten for a long time. Uh, and I think that signaling mechanism was very, very powerful for markets. I think, generally speaking, we all underestimate the power of forward guidance. So and this QE is, was part of forward guidance. This is the issue that I want to pick up on, Mike, that I think most people would agree with that. And I think the Federal Reserve themselves were well aware of that. So why are yep. they not accepting that allowing the balance sheet to roll off also has a signal? And that whether it's a signal that they want it to be or not, the perception is that it's you don't have our back anymore. Well, there's a little bit stuck. They did send a signal when they started the process. They said this is going to run on automatic pilot. It's not going to have a major impact on the markets. We're going to leave it in the background because if we try to manage it, it won't work. And if it becomes a political football, it becomes a real problem with the cost of credit in society. And that worked for a couple of years, and then the equity markets go down a lot, and people start to people look at the cost of credit has gone up, but that's partly because they've been raising the Fed funds rate, partly because Treasury is issuing so many T-bills. And so now they have people saying, well, it's it's QT. It's it's the Fed balance sheet. Uh, I think Cameron's right. It's, it's not easy to do because this is a somewhat complex subject, and a lot of people don't want to really think about it. But if he could explain that this is not their problem and there's a reason why they're doing what they're doing, it would probably help if, if people can comprehend what he's saying. Is saying it's not a policy tool sufficient for it not to be a policy tool? And it's, that's essentially my position on well, this. Yeah, I, and I, I understand what you're saying. And this is why I think it, they would they would do themselves a service to 
go out of their way to explain why it's not a policy tool. Um, it, it's, you know, it's like kind of like saying, well, you don't you don't take penicillin every day of the year in case you get an infection. Yeah. So all we're doing is we're taking the patient off penicillin. Do you want to go to the next FOMC meeting and happen with the statement? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> bet you would. That'd be fun. <laughs> Michael McKee, Cameron Christ, guys, happy new year from New York for London. You've been listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>